0: Good day and welcome on board the Good Ship Talking Space. This is a special installment of Talking Space, episode number 337, recorded on September 10th, 2011. I'm Gene Mikalka, and I'll be flying the USS Talking Space solo today. I've never flown solo before, so fasten your seatbelts, everybody. This can get a little interesting. Uh, Mark Ratterman is on assignment at NASA's Kennedy Space Center, covering the launch of the Twin Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory satellites, which is happening even as we speak. Uh, Gina Herlihy is preparing for a corporate trip abroad, and Sawyer Rosenstein is just getting acclimated to his new surroundings at the university he's attending. So hopefully we'll have all hands back on deck on a future episode here. All right, just to get the legal and the disclaimer out of the way, our only purpose here on Talking Space is to educate and inform. Any views expressed here are the opinions of our panelists and guests and do not represent the, the positions of NASA or any other space agency, its contractors, or affiliates. And if you want to go ahead and use today's show in any presentation, it's best to contact us here at Talking Space first. We can be reached at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. Okay, today's topic... Now, low-Earth orbit is a mess, with uh, jetsam and flotsam floating around at speeds anywhere between 17,000 and 20,000 miles an hour. These pieces of debris, some relics from the beginning of the space age, are numerous, and they are of various shapes and sizes, and their presence is threatening commercial development of low-Earth orbit. Now, a report was issued last week by the National Research Council, It indicated that the orbital debris problem may have reached a tipping point where collisions of decommissioned satellites, empty boosters, and smaller pieces will continually collide with each other. The result is, well, more debris in low Earth orbit causing this problem to get worse. This may prevent future utilization of low Earth orbit and cause a threat to orbiting satellites and, yes, to the International Space Station. To talk about this problem a little further and to discuss ways to solve this looming crisis, I asked two recent graduates of Singularity University's 2011 class, Major Franz Geil, United States Marine Corps, retired, and the author of the book, It's Only Rocket Science, Dr. Lucy Rogers from the United Kingdom, both already quite accomplished in their respective fields, to discuss the issue of space debris. Both had studied the issue of Earth-orbital debris and brainstormed ways of to attempt to mitigate the problem while at Singularity University. Now, I'll begin with the interview by asking our two guests a little bit about their backgrounds, their experiences at Singularity University, and then we dive headfirst into the space debris issue. France, can you give me just a little bit of, of your background for me, please, before we start? Uh, sure. Uh,
1: well, I've, I've served uh, 22 years in the Marine Corps, uh, both enlisted and uh, as an officer. Retired as a major in 2002. Came back with a second career as a civil servant. Again, working for the Marine Corps in the Pentagon as a science and technology advisor. Uh, in the Marine Corps, I was an infantry officer. Uh, but uh, during that time, I was sent to graduate school and uh, got a master's in space systems operations. And I got another master's in, uh, national resource strategy. And, uh, part of my space, my space work, uh, was heavily related to, uh, directed energy, lasers, other sorts of things that I ended up, I, I would say, specializing in to a certain extent. And, uh, so, uh, and that's where I am today. And, and when I came back uh, as a science and technology advisor, those were the areas I was asked to uh, focus on as a part of my job. D-
0: Dr. Rogers, a little bit about your background, please.
2: Yeah, well, uh, got a, I started with an engineering degree and went on to study uh, bubbles so as a Ph.D. I, uh, I looked at fluid dynamics and firefighting foams, um, so, you yeah, know, Ph.D. In, in, in engineering. Um then moved on and did uh, various work, working as a, ran a computer consultancy, then started doing some science writing, and so authored the book, It's Only Rocket Science.
0: You, both of you are, are fresh out of, fresh out of uh, Singularity University, both graduated um, just, just a, under two weeks ago. Uh, what was, first, what is Singularity University, and what was that experience all like?
2: Okay,
1: I'll go. Ms. France wants to? Uh, You you go ahead first.
2: Yep, uh, Singularity University has the mission to um, assemble people to strive to understand um, sorry, to try to understand the development of exponential technologies that can be used to address humanity's challenges. So uh, exponential technologies is easiest explained looking at computers and Moore's law and um, computer speed doubles every two years uh, so that's a, an exponential trend that we've probably all seen in our own lives but another way to look at it was if you take 30 linear steps you may be going 30 metres if you take 30 exponential steps, one, two, four, 2, etc you'll go 26 times around the world, so we're looking at these exponentially um, evolving technologies to look at some of humanity's challenges in the areas of security, of poverty, of global health, um, in space, all these different areas. The history of Singularity University, it was jointly founded by Dr. Peter Diamandis um, of the X Prize and Dr. Ray Kurzweil. Um, They wanted to develop a new type of university that could uh, leverage the power of exponential technologies to solve the grand challenges. Um, They proposed this in April 2007, um, and the first graduate studies program was held in 2009 um, based at the NASA Ames campus in the heart of Silicon Valley in California. Anything to add, Franz?
1: I think in terms of the exponential technologies, uh, there are are great opportunities, of course, as as with any technological development but there's also great risks. And I think uh, one of the things that the school does is prepare, I would call it a sort of a vanguard or a cadre, truly international in character, that there's this pre-singularity period, uh, that and the singularity is described as an event or a, a phenomenon. I will call it better phenomena where the machine capabilities Often spoken of, and in, in, you see it in science and fiction, and for decades and generations. But actually, that there are some aspects of this science fiction that are going to very possibly become real within. Excuse me. That are actually going to become a reality, where where the computational capabilities of machines uh, actually do come to a point where they rival those of the individual human mind. That includes emotive, creative, all aspects that we associate with being uh, what we call human, uh, will at least be mimicked indistinguishably by machines. And this has nothing to do with machine self-consciousness or such, because these things can't ever be verified one way or the other. There's some risks as we approach that time, Seeing that these, this event or this phenomena does not have unintended consequences—that's about the best way of putting it. And Lucy can correct me if I'm wrong. And this is very much goes back to the uh, the book that sort of uh, established the uh, the doctrinal foundation for the school, which was Ray Kurzweil's book uh, *The Singularity is Near*. It's all described in there. Uh, I'm I, I happen to be one of those who's a little bit uh, pessimistic about this coming phenomena. Uh, Others are more optimistic. I would say, I don't want to say pessimistic, I just say realistic. And so we discussed all aspects of uh, the the opportunities and the risks of this uh, unbelievable acceleration in the pace of change, technological change. Um,
2: The the other thing I I wanted to add uh, was when we started our projects, uh, we were challenged with positively... Positively affecting the lives of a billion people within 10 years. Um, and that was the outcome. But, yeah, positively affecting people by not letting um, computers um, take over the world or um, in medicine making us all become, uh, all our brains going to, you know, great goo or, or whatever it is. Right. So, uh, the yeah, definitely the, the negatives were shown to us and, and many of the things that i hadn't even imagined uh, for example um pacemakers nowadays some of them you can connect to the internet so you can download um all, all the information so that you're you you do not have to go into the hospital you know, and your gp can your uh, your your medical doctor can see over, on the, online how your pacemaker is doing well this is great for you know the positive aspects and then they explain that okay so what if your pacemaker suddenly stops working, so you're found dead. Was it suicide? Did your uh, did the, your spouse hack into your account and actually switch your pacemaker off? Or was a 13-year-old in the Ukraine or, or anywhere who was bored decide to hack into some computer and actually play with it? Or was it specifically done? So, you know, your pacemaker could be turned off from anywhere else in the world is a scary thought that uh, needs to be addressed.
0: Yeah, that is a really, really disquieting thought indeed. Um, Francis, just to follow up on one thing that you touched on, you said you were a little bit, well, maybe pessimistic was the wrong word, maybe yeah, realistic about, you know, what what things may hold. How, how so?
1: I'm concerned about what we, uh, a phenomenon that's called the super empowerment of individuals with new technologies. Uh, what, we, what we refer to as terrorists mm-hmm. are, I would call them ordinary folks who are able to, affect uh, effect strategic change, uh, in, in ways that were unimaginable, uh, when the technologies to do so weren't available. Um, and the dangers from such super empowered destructive individuals are increasing because of these uh, fantastic technologies in other words what was really hard to do we we for years we've talked about well you know the proliferation problem nuclear weapons for example it's it's really a it's really a state problem uh, you need the resources and the intellectual resources the the material resources of a state to acquire, conceive, build, and employ these types of terrible weapons. So that's the level that it was, it, we've been a little bit dismissive of, I say we generally, the civilized states, have been a little bit dismissive of the ability of regular folks,
2: uh,
1: for whatever reasons, whatever mischievous reasons, to build such devices. Well, technologies are progressing in such a way that those and many other examples, nuclear weapons are just one example, it's becoming easier and easier for uh, regular uh, irresponsible folks to do bad things with tremendous technologies. And that, that pace of that the pace of that uh, uh, change is is going so fast that I don't think our societies
0: are able to keep up with it. Dr. Rogers, you mentioned that you folks went ahead and broke up into segments and projects in, in different areas. Um, both, well, You coordinated a, uh, a team while you were over there and France. You participated in that team that uh, decided to explore the uh, possibility of orbital debris mitigation. Can you kind of explain the, the problem to our listeners who may not understand it and or may not be, unfamil- may be unfamiliar with the problem, and why should uh, one really be concerned about it?
2: Yes, sure. The, at the moment, orbiting in space are 18,000 pieces of man-made material that are larger than 10 centimeters, larger than the melon. Uh, these are being tracked by various uh, various agencies. These are all going at speeds of about 17,000 miles an hour. Um, So something the size of a melon hitting something else, a working spacecraft, at that speed is going to cause a lot of problems. However, there are hundreds of thousands of pieces larger than a cherry. There are millions of pieces uh, smaller than that that we know are up there. We're not tracking them. At 17,000 miles an hour, even a grain of sand can cause catastrophic damage. So, you know, something, say the size of a marble, hitting a fuel tank in a satellite can cause an explosion. Each piece, each fragment from that explosion will then also be travelling at 17,000 miles an hour and can also then cause further damage, impact further objects, and as each... Collision occurs, there's more and more fragmentation, the bits get smaller, and there's more and more chance that something um, will, you know, some catastrophic event will happen. So as it carries on, it's a cascade effect. So more pieces will then hit more pieces, will then hit more pieces, until we won't actually have a safe access to space. There will be no safe corridors. We won't be able to get anything safely up into space. um, And, you know, the satellites that are up there Would just be damaged beyond repair. A lot of people are not aware quite how much we now rely on space systems. If, for example, if the GPS satellites went out, yep, we'd go into our car, we wouldn't be able to use our satellite navigation system, and we'd have to rely on maps. Not such a big deal. But um, if if the GPS suddenly went down, air traffic control would have to um, ground all the aeroplanes because they rely on it. All the boats out at sea wouldn't know where they are or in the oceans. Um, they, would, they often rely solely on GPS. Um, the, all the containers um, that are being shipped from A to B, all the goods in the containers are actually tagged by GPS. And so knowing where they are, is going to be more difficult. Um, you know, if, uh, if the backup systems aren't in place, then within a few days, the, shelves, the, the food in the supermarket shelves would know, be all gone. Um, the shelves would be empty, and we'd be having uh, a huge crisis on our hands.
0: Franz, with your military background, um, what kind of national security problem would orbital debris pose?
1: If there, if there is one from a, I guess, from a uh, space capability standpoint, I, I really cannot talk about any of that specifically. Uh, if there's anything at all. Um, but certainly it's, uh, it, it, I think, I think the thing to focus on that, that was important that Lucy said is that, uh, it's the, uh, the impact of having a, an unpolluted orbital environment for satellites and all capabilities, uh, impacts much more than just governments. And I think that's the big point out of it that it really does that it does impact uh, populations at every level that while while space I mean we have redundant systems and obviously if if things fail in space then sometimes there's there's backups and redundant systems that can pick it up in the in the terrestrial space but that we do overall have become very much more dependent on space than we were uh every, every decade, uh, this, is, this, this goes back to these exponentials uh, that, that we learned about at the Singularity University. Our dependency on these systems goes up uh, with time, uh, but not in a linear way, but in an exponential way. So as far as, I guess you can make a general concept, uh, all, all nation states have, a, have, a, have their own national security interests, uh, that are uh, uh, harmed or or uh, helped through the space environment. So that's a general statement that can be made. So if there's a, if there's a problem for the uh, commercial and the civil uh, uh, spheres by space debris, you can imagine that there is one for governments as well. They're, they're both hand in hand.
0: Yeah, I was about to mention um, the other. The other question I had for you both is, uh, what impact would orbital debris have on uh, human operations in low Earth orbit? And obviously, you hear about the ISS having to dodge a uh, uh, piece of space garbage going by, and so on. But, and I, I would anticipate that, that if something isn't done. Um, could theoretically, the International Space Station be at risk?
1: Uh, yeah, that's that's one of the one of the big problems uh, posed by space debris in the in the nearer term, I believe, is the this uh, burgeoning uh, uh, industry of space tourism. Because tourism might not be the, the best word for it; it's more an adventure industry. Uh, people desiring to go to space with uh, whether it be x uh Lynx vehicle or with uh, Virgin Galactic's uh, Spaceship Two. Uh, you have some space hotel projects that are, are taking place uh, that are intended to be uh, manned. And then, of course, you have the space station. And you have countries who, who aspire to are already getting involved in manned space flight. These things tend to take place in low Earth orbit, suborbital some of it. But and if the problem becomes great enough, yes, the risks and hazards of placing humans in low Earth orbit could rise to the point that those industries and ventures are simply shut down because the risks are, are cost prohibitive, not only from the standpoint of human lives, but from the insurance standpoint. Uh, from the the entire entire market goes away. uh, One of the things I'm really happy about is that Lucy wanted to take on the space debris challenge at uh, at Singularity University, and that's why I was so supportive of her, is because she made the point you have to get ahead of the problem. Uh, Because once it appears, as it is with exponentials that sneak up on you, uh, once the problem appears... It may be too late to REACT because REACT has a certain amount of uh, – uh, requires advanced notice and development, et cetera, et cetera. And getting ahead of this problem is probably a good idea, especially with regards to uh,
0: man's face Okay, thank you. Um, so, indeed, you're seeing uh, – you're seeing an issue here for the commercial for the burgeoning commercial industry too for commercial space for the new space industry as it's called um, that this could theoretically be a problem. We're kind of looking for a new goal right now. do you think maybe we should go ahead and clean up our own backyard first and i'll I'll throw this to, out to to either one of you. do you think that possibly we we should go ahead and th- clean up our own backyard first before we go off and venture onto the moon or mars and or should can we do both of these simultaneously or or should should uh orbital debris mitigation possibly be the next step for nasa
2: the major problem with space debris is nobody's taking responsibility for it so at the moment um yeah everyone's saying yes we know it's a problem um but really you know we know it's a problem, but. I don't want to deal with it. It's going to be too expensive. What are the benefits for me? So, you know, the recent report that came out from the National Research Council um, basically highlighted the point that said, uh, you "No, know, guys, we really need to do this and we need to start doing it now because, as Fran said, if we, you know, if we wait too long, it's going to be too late. Um, we're not going to be able to, to fix it. It's similar to... Um, the BP oil disaster that happened recently. They tried to cap the well with various technologies that they thought it might work, but they've never actually tried it. And so some of these things didn't work and the problem went on for longer. So unless we can start sorting it out soon um, and start developing these technologies, there is going to be no commercial um, access to space. Um, And so trips to the moon, etc., are just gonna end up in pipe dreams unless we start doing something now.
0: Okay, so why don't we go ahead and, and talk about trying to solve the problem. What, what obstacles are in, the, are in the way? Obviously, there may be some legal obstacles as well, but um, what are the technical and you know, legal op- obstacles in, in solving this, this problem?
2: Uh, the technical, major technical ones, it's, it's difficult to do. Um, actually, you, know, you try and capture something that's going at 17,000 miles an hour, Um, and getting it into the right orbital plane to be there to match it and what do we do with it when it's there Um, actually testing some of the technologies is also getting anything into space is expensive Um, you know it it costs three thousand dollars to put something as heavy as a can of a can of coke up into space so trying new techniques and and methods of actually removing debris is already going to be very expensive Um, the political issues are definitely interesting. At the moment, the the laws say that you can only move things that you put up there. So, for example, if um, a satellite that the U.S. had put up um, and was was damaged, was no longer working, and may even cause a problem, um, if someone from the European Union couldn't actually go ahead and move that piece of debris, Um, it could be seen uh, uh, as an act of war uh, because you are actually interfering with something that belongs to another nation. So uh, these things need to be looked at, definitely. Um, And some of the technologies that we're hoping to be used um, could infringe the U.S.'s ITAR regulations. Um, So, you know, actually using technologies from one country into another um, so that we can – actually all try and work on this problem is going to be difficult to start with. I think Franz may want to say some more about the technical issues.
1: On the technical side, I think the the space debris issue, and may I add in here at this point, Jean, I just wanted to say, while I am employed as a civil servant at the uh, the Pentagon in support of the Marine Corps, uh, the things that I am saying here today are my own personal opinions, and in no way... Do my comments represent uh, the the official positions or perspectives of the government, the Department of Defense, or the Marine Corps? So these are all my personal opinions. Um, That said, the, uh, um, said, the, uh, the issue with space debris is kind of interesting. We're dealing with an exponentially growing threat which is a little bit different uh, than what other students may have been looking at in their projects at Singularity University. We're not necessarily using exponential technologies to take on this threat, but the spirit is the same. Uh, the, and there's an exponential at work here, and that is the re- debris proliferation, the pollution of low-Earth orbit. Um, and But yet the, the significance is just the same, and we have to get ahead of the problem. The technologies to address debris, cleaning it up, are are already maturing in their own right, in their own spheres, to a different extent. There are what I call a set of kinetic technologies. They would be robots, uh, electrodynamic tethers, uh, various devices. You even have uh, proposals that have been put into NASA and others of using large uh, inflatables uh, with adhesives and foams and mists and all sorts of kinetic solutions that would capture debris or deflect debris or grapple with it and then either deorbit it or put it in a safe orbit those I call kinetic solutions say larger pieces of debris because the larger pieces of debris as Lucy said are are, are still a, a, it's a limited uh, manageable finite numbers pretty big 18,000 maybe maybe more of these big chunks of debris uh it's a big number but it can be managed then you have things that are smaller that Lucy mentioned uh they might require something else and uh one of the one of the issues that is both uh, hopeful and controversial is high energy lasers uh whether they be uh, ground-based or space-based, uh, many proposals have come in to NASA and others uh, to use lasers and, uh, to, to, with the debris problem. And exactly how that works is, to keep it simple, the you know, light does have an, an impact on what it touches and it can, it can help with the problem. Though all those technologies the tethers and uh, stuff that I mentioned earlier and the lasers all progress along their own at their own pace. Now, the most mature, the nearest term in, in Lucy and my assessment when we were at the school was that probably the lasers in the near term, and it wasn't just our opinion, it was also the opinion opinion of NASA officials and some others out in industry. But the lasers are probably ready to go sooner, even now to start taking care of the little debris, because the, like I said, the kinetic technologies for the big chunks of stuff and lasers for the smaller stuff. The problems with lasers are, first of all, of course, the cost. And this is something that hasn't been done before, so you'd have to, a lot of integration of different uh, techniques to detect where it's at and then engaging it, where you would put these lasers, and uh, very expensive. Okay, so it's a resource problem. Even more important, though, important and uh, concerning on the laser side is that, and why you need international cooperation is, how would it be perceived by others who are not involved in the project? In other words, people would perceive a laser as a weapon. And even if it was being, being used for a completely uh, uh, noble uh, endeavor, like cleaning up uh, small debris, uh, still there's the, the perception that it could be used as a weapon. And so these are the sensitive, I call them, diplomatic issues. The use of lasers is a UN-level issue. It's also even more important as the state-to-state the state diplomatic <laughs> issue. And I think uh, uh, three states in particular uh, are of concern here. Uh, and I would venture uh, venture guess that uh, Russia, China, understanding and participation of all of the, all three of those states in particular in saying, yes, we can do this, uh, and then going back and sticking to lasers for the time being. Right. Um, if you don't have the cooperation of those... ...to the tools. Um, so, so I call those, uh, the laser thing is a non-kinetic tool for getting rid of small debris, and then you have the kinetic tools for the larger pieces of debris. All of them are maturing, and there's not there, some of it exponentially, but the exponential at work here, which is different from all the other projects at the Singularity University, is that this is an exponentially growing threat, and that's where I think Lucy really landed on something when she brought that to the school.
0: So we've got the, we've got this problem. You you have what other ways can can we solve? Try to work to solve this problem. I mean, I understand. Um, back in 1995, I guess it was. Uh, I learned this yesterday that uh, we're we're starting to build satellites now, at least. Um, uh, where we uh, plan for, uh, you know, they, they call it a, I believe uh, it's called design to demise, um, meaning that if a satellite enters um, low Earth orbit, it's it's designed in such a manner that, uh, you know, that once it re- you know, once it goes goes into uh, its end of life and is brought down, um, that. Nothing is really, really designed to survive. And I believe also, um, I learned yesterday, too, that the uh, Fermi uh, Space Telescope actually has uh, propulsion on board to bring it down in a controlled manner. Is this also a possible recommendation while we wait for these other other technologies to come online?
1: Um, Yes, and that is uh, the realm of building spacecraft and systems now and in the future, that uh, minimize the chance that debris becomes a problem caused by those new launches, um, that's in the realm of what's called mitigation, space debris mitigation. And that has been fairly successful And uh, to date. Uh, that's both an operational issue. In other words, as you use various stages to get a satellite into orbit, there's always junk that's left over from earlier stages, payload fairings, rocket, rocket motors, etc. Making sure that they their orbits decay much sooner and that these objects re-enter, that's an operational issue. Making sure that their future systems do not uh, contribute more junk to the problem that we already have. So the mitigation effort is is has has been through through actually self-discipline and self-enforcement, rather than, you know, enforcement by some big mandate. There are there are policies in place. They came out of NASA first, and they've been adopted by the U.N. since. But uh, mostly everyone's been pretty good about that, pretty conscientious about that. The problem is the stuff that's already up there. And uh, so, as you said, and there's another aspect of mitigation that's uh, that's been successful is uh, manufacturers or developers are now building in protection systems that will take care of the small, uh, we'll call it the maybe I don't know if the bigger the, the size of a cherry debris that that uh, Lucy mentioned early. That's still pretty big, but smaller than that, uh, some of the protection mechanisms, the shielding, as long as it's not uh, mass prohibitive. Uh, are being installed on some systems to protect them against the sort of the microscopic level stuff that can cause damage. The grains of sand that Lucy mentioned. So mitigation, protection, those things are going along well.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, and also, I believe I heard too that um, at least again, I, I heard this yesterday that there's sort of a an agreement where if you have a satellite up there and it's it's been declared that it's it's gone through its operational life, I believe there's a time limit on bringing that satellite down in a um, you know in a manner that uh, uh, will. Uh, you know, not causing any problem, and I believe that time limit's, like, 25 years. Uh, Should that be decreased to try to, you know, mitigate the the, the, the issue Um, from, like, maybe from 25 years, say, to 10 years if, uh, if, uh, you know, there's a problem, or even five
2: years? I I think that really depends on on where the satellite is and which orbits it it is in. Mm I mean, the The guidelines I think that you're talking about were accepted by the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. That's correct. Um, Yeah, the Space Debris Mitigation Guidelines were accepted in in 2008. Right. So, yeah, they're saying we need to mitigate um, the problems that we're causing. However, even if nothing new was launched from today, the problem of debris would still continue to grow exponentially due to this collision-on-collision collision, um, of the stuff that's up there. So actually, yeah, the mitigation is good, um, and actually putting stuff up that we can deorbit um, is great, but at the moment it's not enough. I mean, I know there are companies out there who are working on um, putting a, a self-contained solid rocket uh, motor on the en- edge of your satellite so that when it comes to its end of life, you can just press the go button button, and it will start deorbiting. Um, that's for items in low Earth orbit. The items that are out in geostationary, the, a lot of the communications satellites, they're too far out to actually be deorbited, um, and so they're pushed further out to a, what's known as a graveyard orbit, where they can't cause any harm, and we can then reuse the, uh, the slot that's in the geostationary orbit for future satellites. So. It's everything needs to be done, and everything needs to be done as soon as possible. However, you know, if you've got a satellite that's going to cost more to bring it down than you actually earned by putting it up there, no commercial operator is going to find that um, a very nice option.
0: Lucy, so you wrote an article that appeared in, on uh, the Discovery News website, possibly uh, suggesting possibly uh, using. Uh, any satellites or any uh, any debris that's been put up uh, up there into a parking orbit um, for salvage is what is what are the pluses and minuses behind that?
2: Uh, this is uh, I mean it, it costs as I said earlier, three thousand dollars to put something as heavy as a can of coke up into space right so we're putting all this stuff up there. Why are we letting it burn uh, and be uh, you know burnt in the Earth's atmosphere to come straight back down when we are looking to, do more things in space in the future. Um, so one idea is, and a company uh, that's actually a, a Singularity University spin-out company, uh, they were from the uh, graduate study programme last year, 2010, a company called Made in Space, they're looking at doing 3D printing in space, so actually using 3D printers to actually manufacture the parts that are needed um, once you're out in space. So this is, they're hopefully going to be testing this on the International Space Station in, I think, 2012. Um, So, you know, astronauts on the space station say, oh, you know, the toilet's broken, we need this new plumbing part, and we'll actually be able to upload the design and print it themselves. Taking this a step further, um, you know, where are they gonna get those raw materials to print it themselves? One day, if we could salvage pieces of debris smelt them down or whatever, um, somehow, and actually reuse the raw materials that we've got up there. Or some rocket, um, some satellites may still have working parts that can be reused again. So reusing and recycling the stuff that's up there is, is you know, has great potential. Feasibility, not there yet, but we're going to be. Um, another thought that, that sprung up was, uh, could we then move all this debris send it on a path, to, say, Mars, and so when astronauts get to Mars and they need either okay, a part, um, which is, yeah. you know, okay, highly unlikely that, that the specific part that they need is going to be there, but they may be able to um, adapt what is there or take the raw materials again, smelt them down. So, you know, if we can put all the debris, go and send it off to Mars, astronauts in the future will then have their own raw materials that they can go and use. Again, lots of problems are involved with this. You know, do we want to go and pollute Mars with all our junk? We're, we're already polluting you know, low Earth orbit uh, with it. Do we want it to go anywhere else? But uh, if we can, re- <clears throat> excuse me, if we can reuse and recycle, well, why shouldn't we? Um, there's only so many resources that we've got, and th- letting things burn up in the Earth's atmosphere is not a good use of our resources.
0: So do you see possibly even using that uh, to just pull it back a little further in, in the construction, possibly, of a permanent lunar settlement?
2: I don't think it should be discounted. Um, I, I really do think that the stuff that's up there, okay, not in the near term, not in the next five years, I don't think we'll be able to start reusing any of this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after that, I, I, I can really see the possibilities for it.
0: Um, I just want to get your, both your, your commentary on on, on uh, a particular problem that arose uh, just yesterday. Uh, NASA held a, uh, an audio press conference about it. Uh, the Upper Atmosphere Research Satellite, or URs, that was launched um, back in 1991 on board space shuttle Discovery. It was decommissioned in 2005, and apparently, it is going to go ahead and re-enter the Earth's atmosphere sometime between, I guess, the the uh, end of this month or the middle of October. We're not exactly too sure the time frame. We don't even know the exact footprint. Uh, we do know that possibly 26 pieces of the satellite are going to survive reentry, but the foot, but, uh, uh, in, its, in its target is, is basically the entire um, uh, region of North and South America here, and, and, and the kicker on this is that all of its propellant has been used. Uh, to try to lower its orbit, to try to lower its orbit or change its orbit so it would come come in a little quicker. How do you deal with a problem like that? This thing is about the size of a, of a school bus.
1: Um, what we should be able to do is to respond in a uh, in a way that we can prevent this this uncontrolled reentry. In other words, we would probably want uh, whether it be debris mitigation systems or or on orbit systems that could that could go to the rescue of this, this dead satellite and perhaps get it to reenter safely and in a controlled fashion. Uh, so again, this gets to the point of preparedness. Lucy brought up earlier the issue of the Gulf oil spill. We had an accident and accidents can happen. Uh, the fact is we hadn't prepared for such accidents and, uh, and therefore, we had a real crisis down there in the Gulf. And the same thing now. We have a crisis of we have uh, stuff that's going to reenter, could hurt somebody. It's unnecessary if we had prepared for it. So this is just a – the, the URS issue is just an, a lesson on, on preparedness. And it applies to space as
0: well. You were talking about possibly attaching something to, to URS. How do you go about – attaching, you know, a a, a sort of a reentry assist device to something that hasn't really been designed to go ahead and do that. And I I think the only, only satellite I know of right now that has such a device on board was the Hubble Space Telescope because it initially was designed to be returned to Earth by the shuttle. Um, URs wasn't really designed to do that, and neither, I'll bet you, half these satellites that are up there. How do you go about attaching something to one of these satellites to bring it down or to help it bring it down?
1: Well, I mean, this is a big challenge, and obviously mm-hmm. we're not prepared to do it at, right. at this time. It would be nice if you had something that was uh, capable of a responsive launch in response, uh, uh, perhaps a robotic system, a space tug of some sort that could go and uh, – and, and and attach a motor that that, that system doesn't currently have, uh, and then that you could, uh, in a responsible and predictable fashion, uh, either uh, force it to reenter at the point of your choosing, or uh, give it some more time on orbit by getting it to a, to a higher orbit. Hmm. Um, no, we ca- we're not capable of doing that now, uh, because, again, we haven't planned for such emergencies.
2: However, there are some some technologies that are are being developed that will be able to do this in the future. For example, um, Jonathan Goff at Altius Space Machines is developing a sticky boom uh, in which uh, it it can adapt to the surface that it touches and actually grab hold of it and start moving it about. So some some technologies are definitely being, being developed. We're not quite there yet.
0: What is in the future for you both post Singularity University? Now that you've decided to go ahead and tackle this this particular problem of uh, orbital debris?
2: Go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, as we saw from our, our, all the work we did over the summer at uh, Singularity University, lasers are the technology that are nearest to being actually proven. Um, to actually get out there and start working on this problem. So uh, we'd like to carry on and do some of the research um, and some of the experimentation that really needs to be done before these lasers can actually be field trialed. Um, we believe that for um, 150,000 US dollars, we can actually start doing some of these experiments in the lab. Um, it'll, it'll probably cost uh, in the region of, of 1 million. Um, France, have I got that number right, to actually get a field, uh, a field laser.
1: Well, uh, no, that, it, would cost, it would cost around a million dollars to, to, to do a completely comprehensive uh, experimentation plan. Uh, that would probably be over a couple of years, um, and uh, if you really want to get some statistical, statistically uh, verifiable results. Uh, to the fidelity that you would need for someone to make a decision to actually commit big money to building a laser and then fielding it. The $150,000 will get you through through some pilot testing. It would include uh, creation of uh, special equipment like a vacuum chamber and some special instrumentation perhaps for – magnetic or or electrostatic levitation of of debris, representative debris, small debris inside of a vacuum chamber, Uh, then for engagement with a laser uh, under various conditions. Uh, You could get a nice pilot test going, uh, get some results that would lead to a more comprehensive test that would cost more money. And then with a real comprehensive test, various laser uh, proposals that have been made over the years compared side by side uh, in a uh, a good test environment, that could lead to some decisions sooner to to go ahead with uh, proceeding with the international cooperation and and, uh, the systems that need to be developed to to take this on. So it's just the the, the very, uh, it's the the crawl before you walk stage uh, that this initial funding would get you to. The facility we've uh, proposed is the Thomas Jefferson Labs uh, Department of Energy facility down in Newport News, Virginia. Uh, they do, uh, they're an international user facility and they are prepared to do just this sort of thing. We have uh, a lot of experience with them. They're fantastic folks. And uh, so that's a good start. I think that's all, uh, that as, we, as we get our, uh, I can say, as, as we get our feet wet in this thing, I guess that's the, that's the start point. Uh, and that's the value that we add, is that uh, this is experimentation that needs to be done to, uh, to give confidence to decision-makers whether some of these laser proposals, which ones are the best ones to pursue.
2: Yeah, so that working on this laser technology and actually getting the experimentation done is our first plan of um, how to, to step forward. Um, with the eventual goal of setting up some form of space salvage association which would be similar for like uh, the AAA a for spacecraft so you know you've got a, a spacecraft something's coming to hit it um, we will either get your spacecraft out of the way or your spacecraft has been hit by something if it's salvageable we'll come and get your spacecraft and repair it you know um, these ideas are are still in the infancy, but uh, one day, you know, hopefully, we'll be able to be working with all the technologies that are um, going to be used to help mitigate and to help remove debris, and actually for all the spacecraft operators, the insurance companies, um, anyone who's got an interest in space, um, we're, we, we want to be able to help with our, with our space salvage um, company.
0: And if if somebody out there with some deep pockets is listening to this and wants to go ahead and, and, and invest in, in, uh, in both of you, where would they go ahead for, for additional information at this time?
2: We have the website, www.spacedebrisresearch.com, um, and that uh, shows some of what we've been doing over the, over the past uh, course at Singularity University and hopefully where we'll be going in the future.
1: And... Uh, I'd, I'd just like to add that at this point, Lucy is the company at this point, and the reason for that is because I remain a, a civil servant at this time into the unknown foreseeable future. And for that, for the, for that reason, I cannot become involved in any aspects of a, of a company, so to speak. What I contribute is, is ideas, and that's about it. And I can do coordination with, uh, with government labs, international user facility like down in Newport News. These are things that I can do uh, within the the realm of my duties as a civil servant, as they're described. But other than that, uh, if if, if you speak of a company in sorts, Lucy is the company. And if resources were to flow to get some experiments done down at Thomas Jefferson Labs, that would have to be through through Lucy. Um, I support it because I'm a concerned government civilian, and so then I, I put my time into it as well. But that's, that's all All my involvement involves at this, at this point.
2: We're also initiating the Space Salvage Authority, an international organization that will provide an integrated approach to dealing with the problem of space debris. We're hoping to work with companies and organizations working towards debris removal, collision avoidance, and mitigation, as well as working with the satellite operators and the insurance companies for this. So that's uh, our plans for the future.
0: Um, one final question for you both: We've talked about why, in some way, commercial entities should worry about this. We've talked a little bit about why, why, in some cases, you know, countries should worry about about orbital debris. Um, why should uh, John and Jake, you citizen, worry about? orbital debris and and how would it affect their lives and if this problem were to go away how would it affect it and do you both see this problem eventually going away
2: um yeah so how how does space debris affect everybody you know 15 years ago it probably wouldn't um but now we're on a the space industry is a 275 billion dollar industry Um, uh, And many of the things that we don't even think about that it affects, search and rescue, tsunami warnings, most of our financial transactions are done using satellites. Um, Wildlife tracking, pollution identification and monitoring, even automated uh, farm equipment uh, now uses uh, satellite technology. So actually everything that we're doing daily, um, we're using satellite technology. It's impacting our lives, uh, which is uh, It's it's happening in more areas than we are actually consciously aware of. So uh, it's going to affect everybody. Um, You know, if certain satellites went out now, within half a day, we could be without power, without water, without transportation systems. Um, It could be really, really bad. And... Let's hope that we can actually solve this problem, but I think it's going to be—we're going to have to start managing it before we can actually get rid of the whole problem altogether.
1: I, I, and on, on that, I, I'd like to say too that the, let's say let's say the, the worst case doesn't come about. Redundant systems prevent the, the catastrophe for the for the regular guy, the regular guy in the public who's watching this and is not involved in the space industry. Uh, doesn't affect in person. Let's say, let's say redundant systems take care of that. It's an environmental problem, and so there's a certain there's a certain degree of just being a good conscientious uh, earthling. As i sitting here in Virginia, um, the the uh, the Gulf oil spill did not affect me directly, but it but it bothered me terribly to watch our environment get trashed like that. Same time, we have these these huge swirling uh, 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 collections of plastic and trash in the Pacific that doesn't affect me directly, but it disturbs me that, that, uh, uh, that we're just continuing to trash the environment. Future generations will be affected directly. The same thing goes for the space environment. Maybe it doesn't affect me directly, but it's another environmental pollution problem uh, that we have done and that we need to clean up. We, we are hurting future generations by allowing these problems to build up now. So I, part of it is just a, a conscientious concern. The other part is what Lucy was talking about, a direct impact that is very real and could happen. Either way, it's uh, something that's a mess that we've caused. And I say we uh, certainly, three great powers in particular, have caused and it's our responsibility for current and future generations to clean it up and the removal piece is the piece that's not happening yet and that needs to begin
0: front scale uh dr lucy rogers thank you so much for taking the time to, for uh joining us today i appreciate it so much and i'm i'm sure our audience is now enlightened pretty much about the problem that we have in low earth orbit and, and its impact to uh to their lives so again thank you so much for taking the time to join us today
2: Thank you, Jean.
1: Thank you, sir.